Some women were watching from a distance. Among them was Ma were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they may go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll, roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Julian Barnes is an English writer, a novelist, whose memoir was called Nothing to be Frightened of. It starts with the line, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Barnes says he was never baptized, never sent to Sunday school. Uh, he says he had no faith to lose. Quote, I have never been to a normal church service in my life. I do baptisms, weddings, funerals. I'm constantly going into churches, but for architectural reasons. And more widely, to get a sense of English, what Englishness once was. But he says he still misses God. On one occasion, Julian Barnes was at dinner with some neighbours and an argument began about Christianity. A young man shouted out, why should God do that for his son and not for the rest of us? And an old friend chipped in. There's a book about how people survive crucifixion, how sometimes they weren't dead when they were taken down. The centurions could be bribed. Barnes, although not religious, found himself joining in. What's that got to do with it, he said. And the exasperated friend replied, well, the point is it couldn't have happened. The resurrection, it couldn't have happened. Barnes, who was exasperated with this argument, said that's the whole point. It couldn't have happened. The point is, if you're a Christian, it did. That's the whole point. The resurrection couldn't have happened. And yet today, we proclaim Jesus rose from the dead. Now today is Easter Sunday, as you've heard a few times. 
And I want to bear in mind there are at least three kinds of people in the room here. Most of them are in, in the room every time we meet. There are committed Christians here. But even committed Christians, particularly in our time, find themselves shaken with doubts. We all do. The second group are inquirers. You're seriously interested, but you're not sure about Christianity yet. You're sort of looking in through the window. And the third group of people are skeptics. You're just skeptical about it all. Really, you're not sure. Maybe you're an atheist or an agnostic. I want to try and speak to all three groups today. I don't know you all but I want to try and address you from uh, our Bible reading. For Christians here, I want to strengthen your faith in Christ and celebrate what the resurrection of Jesus really means. And to those who don't believe or find it hard to believe, I want to show you that this faith has a very strong foundation and to invite you to take the next step. So I have just two points today which are going to come up here. Firstly, what happened? And secondly, what it means. Firstly, what happened? If you assume that Jesus couldn't possibly have risen from the dead, then you have to find an alternative explanation, don't you? And this started a very long time ago. In fact, I guess it would be fair to say that within 10 minutes of the story getting out that Jesus had risen from the dead, some alternative explanations were being offered. In fact, the gospel writers are aware of that. It is reasonable and natural to test such a huge claim, isn't it? In fact, we would be irresponsible not to test the Bible's claim for resurrection of Jesus. The whole edifice of Christian faith stands or falls on the resurrection. If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then Christians are fools, and of all people, most to be pitied. So our thinking about it must be robust. There are five main alternative explanations, and I want to give them an airing today, bring them out of the cupboard, so that we can look at them, especially for those who are doubting or skeptical today. So the next slide will show you the five main alternative explanations. Firstly, the swoon theory. Swoon theory. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but he's fainted. He swooned and later recovered and then managed to show himself to his disciples so it wasn't resurrection, but resuscitation. Second theory is delusion, a sincere delusion. The disciples had a passionate belief, Jesus just couldn't be dead. So they may have had a group hallucination or somehow convinced themselves that they were experiencing him still alive. Thirdly, myth theory. In recent, the last few hundred years, some have claimed that these accounts were legends about Jesus, and like legends do, over time, gradually they grew up and were written down many, many years after the events. Fourth theory is conspiracy theory. We all like a good conspiracy theory, don't we? The idea that this was a, a fraud. Some of the disciples, maybe all of them were in on it, managed to steal Jesus' body away and hid it and then went and boldly claimed that they'd seen him and made the whole thing up. Fifth, the symbol theory. This argument is that the resurrection was always intended to be symbolic. The early Christians never meant us to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. Rather, they wrote these accounts as a kind of artistic way to say that his teaching and his spirit live on. Now, Mark's gospel is widely held by scholars all over the world to have been the first written account of Jesus' life, and it was published some 30 to 35 years 
after the events. So it was nearer to the time of the people who experienced it than the moon landing is to us. The moon landing was in 1969. That means Mark was written down within living memory of most of the participants. And notice in our passage today how Mark carefully sets out the facts for examination. The details that he gives undermine all five of these explanations. Every part of our passage today seeks to eliminate the possibility that Jesus' resurrection was anything else than a great miracle. Swoon theory, the idea that Jesus was not really dead. Now, there's quite a lot of information in our Bible reading to undermine that theory. The whole burial account is a way to certify that Jesus really was dead. One of his followers, who up until this point has been quite secret, he's been in the shadows, he's actually a prominent member of the ruling council of the country. His name is Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy, influential, respected pillar of society, one of the 70 men who led the nation. Now he steps out of the shadows, and he's named here as an identified witness who actually went, bought a linen sheet, brought it back, had Jesus' body taken down from the cross, wrapped in it, and sealed it in a tomb that he'd bought with his own money. Now, the Roman governor, Pilate, was surprised that Jesus had died so quickly, and so he insisted on proof. He sends for a Roman centurion, who's a professional executioner, and he made sure that Jesus is actually dead. He's been dead for a while. And this centurion bore witness of his death to Pilate, who would be the legal authority. And finally, two women are cited as eyewitnesses to the burial. Look at verse 47, and the use of personal names here is quite deliberate. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They saw the body of Jesus being put into a tomb. This is on top of the fact that during the centuries that they were in power, the Romans crucified thousands of people. Not one is recorded as surviving crucifixion. That's the swoon theory. Secondly, delusion theory. Was it a sincere delusion? Look at chapter 16, verse 5. The women who say they see an angel. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. This is a, group, a very clear group experience. People don't have shared group hallucinations like this. And we mustn't overlook how completely unexpected the resurrection was to Jesus' followers. Everything in the text shows this. They went and bought expensive spices. In, the, in those days, a body would be wrapped in cloth and laid in a tomb on a, a rock shelf. And they would put spices onto the body to, uh, out of reverence for it and also to stop the smell of decomposition because burial was a two-stage process. First of all, the body would be left on a shelf until all the flesh had, had uh, decomposed and all that was left was bones. Within a year or two, that would happen. Then they would go back and the second stage of the burial was to take the bones and put them in a, a bone box called an ossuary. And that would be there as a perpetual memorial of the person. So they had bought expensive spices, expecting that he was dead. It showed that they loved Jesus, but they had no anticipation of him rising. 
And the reaction of the women to the angel also shows they're unable to believe in the resurrection at first. Their first reaction is not, oh, I knew it, I knew it, I knew he'd do it. But instead, they are shocked, confused, and afraid. And finally, we should note here that all of Jesus' hand-picked male disciples, the 12, have gone to ground. They're in hiding. Now, clearly, no one expected Jesus to do what he predicted. But why not? After all, he did a lot of amazing things that he said he would do. Historians of the Jewish world point out that devout Jews did believe that God would raise the dead. But in the future, on a single day, when he raised all people from the dead at the end of time, they had no category for thinking that God would raise one person from the dead in the midst of history, sort of on a one-off basis. Professor uh, N.T. Wright, who's a professor at St. Andrews University, says, it will not do to say that Jesus' disciples were so stunned and shocked by his death, so unable to come to terms with it, that they projected their shattered hopes onto the screen of fantasy and invented the idea of Jesus' resurrection as a way of coping with a cruelly broken dream. This has an initial apparent psychological plausibility, but it won't work as serious first-century history. We know lots of other messianic and similar movements in the Jewish world roughly at this time. In many cases, the leader died a violent death at the hands of the authorities. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Thirdly, and I'll deal with myth and symbol together, Mark is careful to name and identify real, historical, individual witnesses. Chapter 15, verse 40. Some women were watching the cross from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. These are carefully named and identified. Uh, many of the people in Palestine at that time had there's about 12 names that about half the population were called. You know, everyone's brother is called Simon. And everyone's got an auntie or a sister called Mary. It's a bit like being a Catholic in Didsbury. And here we find these people identified so carefully. One of them actually is called the Mary of Mother, the mother of James the Younger. It probably means little James. Short James is the little one. Because they were very specific about how they named. So this is, just so you're not sure which Mary it was, okay? It's the mother of the short James and Joseph. And this could be the, the mother of Jesus himself. Now these people were well known in the early church. That's why they're identified. Mark doesn't merely say, a lot of people saw it. Then there'd be no way to authenticate the account, would there? The naming of people is Mark's way of saying... All I am writing can be verified. Go and check it for yourself. It was history. Now, on top of this, there's a very interesting fact from that culture. Mark records that the first witnesses to the resurrection were who? Women. Now, in that culture, no one would have made up a story with women as the primary witnesses because their testimony was not admissible in court. That's what the culture was like. Women couldn't be called to give reliable testimony. 
Jews and Gentiles believed this. So by claiming that only women were the first witnesses, Mark is showing something that has the ring of truth. No one would have made up a story with women as the primary witnesses because no one would believe it. What then about the conspiracy theory? Was it a fraud? You know, Mark reveals this remarkable fact. It wasn't the disciples who buried the body of Jesus, but a stranger, Joseph of Arimathea. And it was women who plucked up their courage to anoint and honor the body. Where were the disciples? That question was so powerful, someone dropped their Bible. Where were they? Afraid, terrified, confused. They went into hiding. Their leader, Peter, completely lost it and and broken and, and denied Jesus, called down curses upon himself. They're in hiding. Everything indicates that they are too demoralized to carry out a hoax. If they're going to carry out a fraud, surely they would have been at the burial, see where the body was, work the things out. But there are two other major problems with this theory of conspiracy. Firstly, as we've already pointed out, nobody believed there was going to be an individual resurrection. So why would you make a story up that it had happened? Unless Jesus really was appearing to people, there's simply no way that a movement based on this belief would have got off the ground. Everything in their belief system resisted that claim. And I think maybe even more poignantly, history tells us that these disciples all went on to live lives of sacrificial service to Jesus, and most of them died terrible deaths to spread the gospel of the risen Christ. Would they have done that if it was all a lie? Do you die for something that you know is a hoax? Do you live a life of service for something you know is a lie? No way. Now, Peter Kraft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College in the US. He's uh, edited or written over 75 books. Kraft looks at these theories. He looks at the swoon theory, hallucination theory, myth theory, conspiracy theory, and he, he develops 35 arguments against them. But you may be relieved we haven't got time to look at those arguments this morning. Let me just say that every possible theory has been weighed and tested very, very carefully by clever people. Kraft concludes with the question, what if you reason this through? And by the way, this is a question for you. What if you reason this through and you conclude that the only plausible explanation is that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead? What fate awaits you? The answer is not obscure. Traditional Christianity awaits you complete with adoration of Christ as God, obedience to Christ as Lord, dependence on Christ as Savior, humble confession of sin, and a serious effort to live Christ's life of self-sacrifice, detachment from the world, holiness, purity of thought, word, and deed. The historical evidence is massive enough to convince the open-minded inquirer, but are you open-minded? By analogy with any other historical event, the resurrection, says Kraft, has an eminently credible evidence behind it. To disbelieve it, you must make an exception to the rules you use elsewhere in history. Now, why would someone want to do that? Ask yourself that question if you dare, and take an honest look into your heart before you answer. Why would you want not to believe in the resurrection? What happened? Back to the first point. Jesus Christ literally 
and physically rose from the dead, as he said he would. David, do you mind moving the slide on? Second point and final point, what it means. What it means, if we come to accept that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, what does it mean for us? What is the real world cash value on Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Friday night? Now to answer that question, we need to look elsewhere in the New Testament because Mark is typically brief and provocative. But the fullest explanation of what the resurrection means is given in a glorious chapter uh, by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read from that. We haven't got time to expound it fully, but I'll read from it, and it speaks for itself. If you've got one of these blue English Bibles, it's page 1156, page 1156, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll start reading at verse 20. Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep means died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. What does it mean that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? It's not just a one-off amazing miracle. It means that history has changed, that we're in a new world era. Everything has changed. And those who put their trust and faith in Christ alone, through his grace alone, will one day be raised like him, never to die again. It means that death has been defeated. C.S. Lewis, in his book on miracles, describes it like this. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, like the beginning of a crop, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he's done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. See, the resurrection means that Jesus now is Lord of all, and his new creation has begun in him. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on putting him first and seeking his righteousness and his kingdom in your life is true. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on loving the outsider and having compassion on those that society rejects and on the poor is true. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on forgiveness is true. So lay down your grudge. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on sexuality is true. So follow him however costly it may be. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have nothing left to fear. 
Yet so many of us are bound by fear, aren't we? We're ruled by fear. You may think, well, I don't think it's really me. But are you ruled by anxiety? That's fear. What do you fear, my friends, that is bigger than Jesus Christ? The Lord of history, the risen one. What could happen to you that is worse than death? He's already defeated death. He didn't just defy death. He didn't just deny death. He destroyed death. Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's pulled the sting from the tail of our worst enemy. So if you're a Christian believer today, are you walking in the light of Jesus' victory over death and his resurrection power? Or are you a slave again to fear? Have you allowed yourself to be taken captive again by all your anxiety? Hebrews 2 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, it's what we are, he too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What could you be afraid of that is bigger than Jesus Christ? our Lord and Saviour. What are you afraid of? Now, I sometimes hear Christians, and I do it too, talk about taking our burdens to the foot of the cross. Maybe we should correct that today. Maybe we should take our sins to the foot of the cross. But take our fears to the empty tomb. Look in through the doorway. See that young man dressed in white, an angel, sitting at the side, confidently and calmly saying, he's not here. He has risen. See the place where they laid him. There's no going back for Jesus. You now have nothing left to fear. But you know, God knows us. And he's tender with us even in our weakness. And this passage shows how life is even after the resurrection. Those of you who've been around during our series on Mark will remember Mark loves sandwiches. And I don't mean the sandwiches in your packed lunch. Mark loves telling a story where he starts uh, the story and then he interrupts himself and does a middle bit. And then he comes back to the, pe- the bit at the beginning. And either side of, of um, the story is like two bits of bread. And there's a bit in the middle that's the filling. And the, the different parts of the story actually help to interpret each other. And that's what's happening here in our passage. Have a look at chapter 15 again, verse 40. It starts with uh, the women at the tomb. Sorry, women watching from a distance and gives their names and talks about them. And then, verse 42, there's an interruption. And a new character comes in, Joseph of Arimathea, and we learn all about his dealings in coming and getting the body and going to Pilate and so on. And then, chapter 16, the women come back into the story. What is is Mark showing us here with this teaching? It's a contrast here between fear and faith. Now, on this occasion, the women... Show us that it's the nature of our hearts, which is to be afraid. They, they do watch Jesus on the cross, but from a distance. They don't want to get too close in case they get identified with him. And they come secretly behind. And then when they come with their spices to anoint the body, they're afraid. And even when they hear the, the voice of the angel, what, what's their response? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They were said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I've just been told by an angel, go and 
tell these people what's happened, but they say nothing at that moment because of their fear. But the contrast is this guy who up until this point has been probably quite afraid himself, Joseph. He's got a lot to lose. He's a person of some status and some substance in society. And yet he sticks his neck out now. Just how important this is, you remember how Peter, Jesus' closest friend, the, the, the leader of the group, had been just a few hours earlier? Peter had denied Jesus because he was afraid of being identified with him. Here we have this man, Joseph, coming, coming right forward. It says, boldly he came to Pilate. You could translate that, screwing up all his courage. He comes and asks for the body. He's really identifying with Jesus now. He goes and buys a linen cloth and wraps the body. Everybody now knows Joseph is a follower of Jesus. And there we have for us too the choice facing us in our lives. Will we be afraid and hang back and not follow Jesus when we clearly hear his call? Or will we say, no, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to follow him. Now, there's an interesting thing you may have noticed on the last page of our reading. You have this line in the text and then a bracket that says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. And then in italics in our church Bible, it gives us two alternative endings. One of them is in a footnote. It's very formal uh, and it's quite short. And then the other one is a bit longer, but it's not in the same tone and language as the rest of Mark. And it seems very, very likely that these two endings were written later to try and provide a suitable ending for Mark. And to this day, we don't know how Mark really ended. Some people believe it ended with verse 8. Women, the women fleeing afraid. And that's it. And Mark just leaves it on this kind of cliffhanger. But many scholars believe that it seems unlikely that Mark would have finished there. More likely he would have had a, another paragraph, another column, just giving a bit more about Jesus' final words to them after he rose from the dead and how the disciples came back together. We, we don't know what happened to the end of Mark. And I'm not going to go into all the detailed arguments here. But in God's strange providence, this is actually a really good ending. Why? Because there's a blank at the end of the story. You have to fill in the gap after verse 8. And you need to fill it in yourself. They fled afraid and said nothing to anyone. What about you? What will the ending be in your life? Do we take Easter for granted today? Or are we awestruck by the risen Lord Jesus, his suffering and death for us, and the glory of his resurrection life? What is his call on your life now? What tasks has Jesus given you today? What would it mean for you to follow him? Let me close by just telling you about a man who had a lot to fear, but found that Jesus was big enough to deal with all his fears. Edward Coombs was a vicar in the Oxfordshire town of Banbury. He was known as a gentle vicar who served his church faithfully for 15 years. He was married and had three young children, the youngest of whom was six. One day he felt ill, went to the doctor, and they discovered he had a rare form of cancer. And he was diagnosed with it 
just six months before he died. Now, six months is not a lot of time to prepare for death, is it? Edward and his wife wrote to keep their church family and friends up to date with what was going on. They shared their struggles openly, particularly the thought of leaving young children behind. And a friend of mine was a member of that church in Banbury. And here's what he said. Edward's letters always ended in praise and were full of hope. I realized that in the face of absolute certainty of imminent death, this guy is not faking it. He had a hope that simply didn't make sense. People in the hospitals, hospital doctors and nurses, couldn't believe it. We all saw how it cashed out in his life. We saw constant hope. And his last words were, Jesus is everything. Now, that is the hope the resurrection can give you, and nothing else can. So three years ago at that little church in Banbury, they sang this song, I will sing the wondrous story. It contains this verse. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely over, all my joys in him complete. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. Let's pray.